Previously on Searching for Ghosts. But you have to realize at the time, Cindy didn't have a phone. Yes, she did not have a phone. In the house. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a light on the front porch. Didn't have a light bulb on the front porch. The fact that Cindy has all but disappeared herself doesn't help her case in the court of public opinion. So many that I've talked to all point to the fact that she isn't currently publicly trying to find answers in her daughter's disappearance as an indication of guilt. Then on April 14th, I received a post on my Facebook timeline that read, Hello, Brandon. I'm Cindy McDaniel, Casey's mama. Would like to speak to you. Get back with me if you're interested. But there was supposed to be a payphone in there. Yeah, and I don't know why no one ever... Whoever she called at that church, if she'd left, is who she'd left with. In a case like this, there are a ton of theories. In August, it will be 21 years. 21 years since Casey McDaniel vanished. In that span of time, a lot of things can happen. Potential sources pass away. Recollections from people close to the case become fuzzy. There is a game called Chinese Whispers. In the United States, it's known as the telephone game. In this game, one person whispers a message in the ear of the next person in line. The second person does the same thing to the person next to them, and so on. The last player announces the message to the entire group. The objective is for the first person and the last person to have the same message. But errors happen in the retelling, and depending on how many people are playing the game, many times the last message in no way resembles the original one. While this makes for wonderful child's play, it can cause high blood pressure and hair loss when it comes to investigating a 21-year-old missing persons case. I'm Brandon Barnett, and this is Searching for Ghosts. This case is the Chinese Whispers game on steroids. After 21 years, the stories didn't just morph, they attained urban legend status. And these stories are the ones that always include the disclaimer of, I know what happened, from the people who tell them. The stories that are repeated most seem to have the least amount of hard evidence behind them. Obviously, they can't be ignored. They might be true, or at least have a kernel of truth in them. Then you have the one-off stories. The ones where a name comes up that you've never heard before, and you never hear again. Once again, you don't want to ignore this information, but these stories hardly ever lead anywhere. So you file them away in your notes and move on. Then you have the stories that are not as prevalent, but you have two or more sources who give similar accounts with similar details. And sometimes, these correlate with news reports. Those are the ones that interest me the most. The idea is to walk this thing slowly and look at the reports carefully and objectively. Obviously, something was missed in this case. And I see no point in blazing through everything and making the same mistakes some two decades later. I noticed something in the first article of the Mirror Exchange concerning Casey's disappearance. At the end of the article, the author gives some family history with a seemingly out-of-place piece of information concerning a friend of Casey. 
Quote, Casey's parents are divorced. Her father, Ronnie McDaniel, is living near South Fulton. He'd recently been injured in a motorcycle accident. Casey reportedly had been friends with a Milan teenager who is now held on federal charges in a McNary County jail. She also has an uncle living in Florida and an aunt in Knoxville. Unquote. That passage struck me as odd when I first read it. That kind of information would either take a little digging or it came from a tip. It's in the article for a reason. I later received a tip from a reporter who remembered an in-depth Jackson Sun article that revealed that Casey was pen pals with someone in prison. Then, the day after releasing the bonus episode, I received those back articles of Casey's disappearance from the Jackson Sun newspaper, and there is some gold in there. From the September 15, 1996 edition of the Jackson Sun, quote, Once, a year ago, Cindy heard Casey talking on the phone to a young man named Charlie she'd met at church. I said something about him to a friend, and she was horrified. Cindy, she said, he's 18, and I jumped Casey about it. She told me I just didn't know him. And I said, I don't care if he's the Pope. He's too old for you, and you're not to call him. She thought she was going to turn his life around. He was the first one I checked on, but he's in the McNary County Jail. Unquote. And this information verified what Kathy had said a few weeks prior. Yeah, and he was supposed to have gotten out about the time I made her mad. That's when she had moved to the house for case commitments. In episode two, Valerie, I talked about a rumor that Casey had used a phone at the church to make a call. I asked former lead investigator Jerry Hartsfield if he remembered investigating a phone call made from the church by Casey. He had no knowledge of any phone call being made. I don't, I don't remember anything about it. Because I talked to the lady that brought her home that worked at the church or was you know, a church member with that group that brought Casey home that night. Um, we interviewed her. She didn't say anything about a phone call that, that I remember. Right. There's also nothing in the news reports I've recently obtained about any phone call being made from the church. Is this just an urban legend or an oversight by police? Because without there being a working phone at Cindy's house, any call made by Casey would be a game changer as to her whereabouts after she left the church. I had a source ask a member of the church who was there in 1996 about the phone situation from back then. The church member indicated that it would have been a church phone and not a pay phone that Casey would have used. Then I received word from a source that there was a letter written to Casey some months before she went missing. So I set up an interview to see what this was all about. This source stated that Cindy had possession of this letter at the time and that she let my source read it. It was from an adult authority figure who stated that God was telling him that Casey was to be his virgin. That was the only detail given to me, but my source said it was, quote, creepy, unquote. I was also told that Cindy, Cindy's boyfriend Steve, and Joe, her brother, took matters into their own hands concerning the letter. This was also confirmed in the interview I did with Kathy. See, I wasn't around that much, 
but I was around long enough to know about the letter, and I was long, I was around long enough to know that Cindy and Steve and Joe went over there and jerks Casey out of his house, and they were smoking pot. And Cindy didn't live in her house that she was in with Casey coming up. She was living in some apartments up in town, and she had told me how they went over there and drug Casey out of this dude's house. I know it tore Cindy and Steve and Joe all up. There is nothing in news reports to substantiate this, so I again contacted former lead investigator Jerry Hartsfield to see if law enforcement knew about the letter at the time. I don't, I don't remember anything like that being brought up. Every, everything, besides man, I tried to cover every single detail, followed up every lead. Right. For an entire year. They took me off everything. I worked this case for an entire year. Nothing but this case. Right. And because uh, I had a good a good boss, yeah. Richard McCoy, and and he took me off and told me that whatever it took, do it. Um, I don't know anything about this door being kicked in and all that because they, they, if it happened, they should have brought that to my attention. Yeah. And uh, so it could have been investigated and dealt with properly. There seemed to be a pattern of adult men showing interest in the underage Casey. This is unsettling at best. This type of thing sets up a scenario that could easily lead to a motive to do harm to Casey. Do these things have anything to do with Casey's disappearance? Is the letter real? Was this the doing of a delusional older man who felt that God was speaking to him in this manner? There is one person who can either confirm or deny the existence of this letter. One person who might even still possess it and knows who the author is. That person is Cindy McDaniel, Casey's mother. An update on Cindy. I've heard from family members that she has been released from jail. I've sent word that I still want to speak with her. There are so many questions that only she can answer, and she can remove the cloud of suspicion hanging over her by coming on this podcast. Cindy, when you're ready to talk, I'll be here, waiting. You've been listening to the Left of Nashville Podcast Network. Mm.